met in the team. Uh, what a blessing that was. Uh, I must say, you guys are so cool. Uh, you could be at home watching the rugby, and here you are. Well done, good and faithful servants. Am I allowed to say that? I'm not sure. I think Jesus is allowed to say that. Okay, anyway. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We're coming to an interesting portion in Mark's gospel, uh, the largest teaching block in his uh, record of Jesus' ministry. Uh, this part has typically been called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus exits the temple, sits opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives, and teaches on the end of the age. Uh, before we read, have a look at how this passage really fits together. You'll see in verse 1 to 2, uh, Jesus predicts again the destruction of the temple. And then in verse 3 to 4, uh, the disciples ask him two questions. Uh, the first, they ask him the when question. When will all of these things take place? And then they ask him secondly the what question. What will be the signs of all these things taking place? And from there on, Jesus teaches his disciples about one, the, the signs of the end of the age, verse 5 to 13, then the destruction of the temple, uh, verse 14 to 23, uh, the return of the Son of Man from heaven on the clouds, verse 24 to 31, and the implication of all of this for us now in verse 32 to 37. Now, as you'll see as we read through this passage, Jesus really deals with the what question. He really answers that question. He spends little time, if any, on the when question. In fact, instead of answering when all these things will take place, Jesus is more concerned with how we live now. Rather than having us speculate about the, the date of his return, Jesus is more concerned with how we live now in light of his return. Uh, in a sense, uh, Jesus' concern here reflects Paul's concern in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. He would have us be devoted to stewardship and not speculation. And so that's kind of where we're going uh, as we consider this passage. So please do read with me uh, from verse 1 to 37. Uh, this is God's Word. Let's hear it together. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for that it will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand 
what you ought to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen, has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he, he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will will be falling from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see these things take place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in, in the evening or at midday, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. And you suffer with the reading of God's word. May reform our lives to its truth. I know we've prayed, but let's pray again and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, as we come to this very difficult passage, as we come to think about things that are way ahead of us, way beyond us to grasp fully, we pray that you'd give us humble, attentive spirits that would be keen to learn. That in all the questions that this passage might uh, pose to us, we pray 
that our appetite would rather be for Christ. That even as we come away from this text and, and all that it teaches us, we ask, dear Lord, that Christ we become uppermost again in our hearts, in our lives, that we would live for Him. And so would you not help us? Would you not grant us access by your Spirit into the deep truths of this passage so that we would be a people pleasing in your sight as we hear and obey, but also that you would receive your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll never forget the first time we had to rush Sophia to the ER. Uh, at the time, Sophia was nine months old, and one evening out of the blue, she developed this fever, and we did what any new parent would do. We phoned our parents to figure out what to do with this baby that's burning up. It, no matter what we tried, no matter what tricks uh, our parents told us, nothing break, broke her fever. And eventually around 1 o'clock in the morning, we rushed her to the ER. And we stayed there till the very next day, late in the morning. And let me tell you, that evening and that morning was not pleasant. Because we love our daughter, because we were concerned for her health, we stayed awake. We watched over every half an hour, uh, taking her temperature. We were alert. Why? Because our daughter was in trouble, and we were concerned for her. Now, as a parent, I hope you understand that, but why am I sharing that? Well, for our own health, for our own benefit, Jesus in this passage is calling upon us to stay awake, to be watchful, to be alert. You see this emphasis throughout this entire passage. Uh, the Greek word blepo uh, happens four times. It means to look, to watch out, to be vigilant. You see it in verse 5. See, that's the word, that no one leads you astray. You see it in verse 5. Oh, sorry, verse 9. But be on your guard. You see it in verse 23. Be on your guard. Watch out. Verse 33. Be on your guard again. And Paul, uh, well, Jesus adds another word now. Also, he says, keep awake. Uh, that word for awake is Gregoria in the Greek, and, and like Beppo, it happens four times, and it has the same connotation. It means to watch out, to, to be awake, to, to have a wakeful concern. Uh, you see it happen in verse 34, stay awake. 35, therefore, stay awake. 37, and I say to you, and I say to all, stay awake. Now, the question is, why would Jesus make this point again and again and again? Well, the simple answer is that we are prone to spiritual drowsiness. We are prone like a child with a high fever that wanes in and out of consciousness and is weary and sleepy. We are prone to, to drift away and become drowsy. We, we are prone to fall into a spiritual stupor where we go through the religious motions, where we get filled with the, the lights of this world and its comforts, where we become indifferent to God. And the result is we are lulled into a spiritual sleep. 
Uh, in my preparation, I was reminded again of an article that John Bloom wrote uh, in 2019. He mentions there that this couple in the Middle East were converted, and he noted how every single day this couple would pray together because they knew if their country found out that they were Christians, they would not see each other again. Yet by God's grace, they were allowed to go to the States, and they stayed there for a little while, but after a while, they decided to leave, and the wife insisted to leave. Why? Well, she said this, it's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here, and the Christians are asleep. And he tells the story that they actually left and went back to the Middle East. See, they were concerned by this spiritual drowsiness that had taken hold of the church there. And if that's true of the states, could it not perhaps be true of us in our comfortable, easy Christianity? Uh, Make no mistake about it, there is the real threat of spiritual drowsiness. How often are we not deaf to God's Word where it's just words on a paper where it's not God speaking to us? How often do we become blind to God's work in the church and in our lives? How often are we not dull in our worship, just going through the motions, flapping our lips, but our hearts aren't engaged? Make no mistake about it, spiritual drowsiness is a real threat. Uh, Consider 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5 to 6. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Or or consider 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour or consider Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, the same word there, watch out. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. Dear friends, realize, because we live in a darkened world, because we face a fierce devil, because we have a fallen nature, we are called to stay awake and not fall prey to the spiritual drowsiness that sets in and leads us away from God. That's what Jesus' point is in this teaching section. He's calling us to a spiritual wakefulness and alertness, especially given the age in which we live. As we consider this passage, I think there's three words that I think summarizes Jesus' concern for us. The first word is this, it's watch. Watch. As I mentioned from verse 5, Jesus starts answering the what question, and namely, he points out what the signs are of the end of the age, and he mentions four. He says there will be false teachers. In verse 4 to 5, or 5 to 6, Jesus says there will be many false teachers who, who claim Jesus' name. They will claim to represent him. Some will even claim to be him, yet they will lead people away. In the name of Christ, they will turn people away from Christ. Isn't that, in a sense, what all false teaching is? In the name of God, to lead people away from God. 
But that's not all. Jesus says in the end of the age, there will be wars and rumors of war. That's what he points out in verse 7 to 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's all to say that the end of the age will be marked by national and political upheaval. Notice, we are not heading towards a, a peaceful, utopian society. No, our world will be marked by conflict and war, threats and danger. Thirdly, there will be natural disaster. At the end of verse 8, we see that earthquakes and famines will occur in various places, which means that not only will there be, be national calamity, but natural calamity. And both really point out to us that this world will be marked by instability. The end of the age will be unstable. And if that's not worse, if that's not enough, he says, fourthly, there will be persecution. Not only will there be calamity in this world, but the church in this world will face calamity. Look at verse 9 to 13. We see there that Christians will not only be persecuted by the Jews, but by governors and kings, which means there will be uh, religious persecution, national political persecution, and even family persecution. Verse 12 Christians will be betrayed and handed over by siblings, ch children, and, and parents. In fact, verse 13, Jesus warns, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So according to Jesus, the end of the age, the end of this world will be marked by false teachers, wars, natural disaster, persecution. Now, he doesn't paint a pretty picture, does he? That's not quite encouraging, actually. And I think Jesus is intentional here. He wants us to know that in this life, you will have trouble. John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. And have you not seen this in the history and the life of the church We've seen false teachers rise up and mislead thousands. We've seen national and natural calamities causing fear and harm and devastation. We've seen persecution of Christians that has ravished the church. Realize, make no mistake about it, we are living in the end of the age, and Jesus reminds us that it's going to be filled with tribulation. And why does he remind us of it? So that we'd watch out. Uh, when facing the force of Nazi Germany, Winston Churchill famously prepared the British nation and said, I promise you only blood, sweat, toil, and tears. And why did he say that? Well, he, he wanted to prepare the nation. He wanted to give them the right expectations of what lies ahead of us or ahead of them. And, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I promise you blood, sweat, toil, and tears. I promise you tribulation. Therefore, be on God. Be vigilant. Watch out. And notice, he isn't saying, watch out for these signs. He isn't saying, be so consumed by sign gazing on YouTube. Be so focused on the next sign, the next trouble that is heading our way. 
No, that's not the point of this chapter at all. Now, Jesus, point, Jesus points out all of these signs, these troubles, these woes, so that we can watch over ourselves, lest we be led astray. Look again at verse 5. See that no one leads you astray, i.e., keep watch over yourself. Or, or look at verse 9, be on your guard. The Greek is a bit more... Uh, Focus in the ESV, the NET gets it right. I think you must watch out for yourselves. That's the idea there. Did you see Jesus keep, he's saying, keep watch over yourself so that you can be prepared for trouble, so that you can persevere till the end. Not so that you can be so consumed by these woes and these worries. Uh, from our text, I think Jesus would say that we should watch out for three things. We should watch out, or we should watch that, or you should watch that you aren't deceived. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Now, how often have we not seen this? People being led astray because they latch onto a particular pet hobby, a hobby horse. Whether that hobby horse is end times or whether it's what's happening in Israel or whether it's conspiracy theories of government or whatever it is, again and again we see people latch onto these things to the point that Christ is no longer essential and Christ-likeness is no longer produced. And it's this very phenomenon that Jesus is telling us to watch against. Watch that you're not deceived by falsehoods, falsehoods that will so lead you astray away from Christ. But I think Jesus would also say, watch that you aren't distressed. Uh, verse 7, Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. Again, how often have we seen people crippled by fear because they hear the news, they see something's happening in Israel, Russia's done something, and so they become fearful. They become dreadful, or they dread for what is ahead of them. And Jesus is saying you, don't be distressed. These things, these wars, these rumors of wars must take place. And they must take place because at the end of the day, God is in control. He is working through history. Watch, therefore, that you don't give in to distress. Distress marked more by unbelief than faith. So watch that you aren't distressed. But, but he would also say, I think, watch that you aren't distracted. Uh, look at the end of verse 9. Jesus says Christians will be handed over to persecution. But Why? Verse 9, to bear witness. He even says in verse 10 that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Apparently for Jesus, one of the purposes of persecution is the preaching of the gospel to the nations. Isn't that what we see in Acts? The, the, the Jews persecute the Christians and the Christians turn to the Gentiles. And we see the gospel flourish as it brings multitudes to saving faith. And the point for us is this. Christians living in the end of the age, whether they face persecution or not, are called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. 
And what is more, verse 11, Jesus encourages us with the fact that we aren't alone in this. Now, even when we face hostility, we have the Holy Spirit who enables and who strengthens. And therefore, the idea is this, remember your calling, remember your duty to preach the gospel. In the end of the age, watch out, dear Christian, that you don't get distracted from your main business, which is to make known the gospel to the nations, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All in all, Jesus is saying, in this tribulation, be watchful, be on God so that you are not deceived or stressed and distracted away from Christ. As Jesus exhorts us in Luke 21, 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down, lest your hearts be inebriated with this world, lest your hearts be so intoxicated with this world that no longer beats and no longer has an appetite for Christ. So that's the first word, watch. The second word is, is more difficult because we don't like it, and also the next part is difficult, the passage. And the second word is wait. Wait. In verse 14 to 23 and verse 24 to 31, Jesus describes two events. The one is the revival of the abomination of desolation, and the other is the return of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. And both events in biblical eschatology goes together. Now, the return of Jesus is, is easy. The more difficult part is what do we make of this abomination of desolation? Who or what is this desolation, this abomination that makes desolation? Although this is often debated, I think the, the traditional view is right. In verse 14 to 23, Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple. How else do we explain this idea that the Judeans must flee to the mountains? How else do we explain the idea that they mustn't go back to their homes for their cloaks? How else do we understand this idea to pray that would not happen in winter? So see, Jesus' description initially at least fits Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And we know in history that in AD 70, the Roman general Titus invaded Jerusalem and, and ultimately destroyed the temple, fulfilling Jesus' words in verse 1. And, and if Jesus is referring to Titus, then Titus is, as verse 14 says, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. And I, some of you might know that idea of abomination of desolation that's taken from Daniel 9, 27, 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, 11. And, and in those passages, Daniel is speaking of a pagan king, a, a pagan king who goes where he's not allowed, and he does something that is repugnant to God. He goes into the temple, he commits an abomination, and he brings the right worship of God to an halt, to a halt. And, and this sacrilege, this abomination, leaves the temple desecrated and in, desolate, in a desolate state. Hence the, the abomination that makes desolation. 
Now, if you read uh, 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 54, and we don't recommend that, that's all inspired. But nevertheless, if you read, you'll see that, that the Jews thought that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. 160 years before Jesus, Antiochus not only entered the temple, but sacrificed a pig to Zeus, committing the ultimate abomination and bringing the worship of God into a desolate state. Now, Jesus seems to be saying here that Daniel's prophecy finds fulfillment not just in Antiochus in 167 BC, but in AD 70 with Titus. And so the thing we need to see here is, is we're dealing with a prophecy here that has multiple fulfillments. A prophecy of an unbeliever that, that commits an abomination before God and leads to desolation in the place where God ought to be worshipped. So, so that's the, the traditional view of seeing that. But, but what do we make of verses 19 to 23? Uh, those verses don't quite fit with Titus, uh, Titus's uh, desecration in AD 70. Uh, for example, Jesus says in verse 19 that the temple's destruction will be the greatest tribulation that has been ever been experienced. In verse 20, 20, he even says that the days will be cut short for the sake of the elect. And even more strangely, verse 21, he, say, he introduces this idea that false Christ will, will perform signs and, and wonders who lead people astray. Despite what some theologians try or argue, these descriptions don't really match with Titus in AD 70. And so, what's going on here? Well, Jesus in this passage, I think, is describing events that are true of AD 70 and events that go beyond AD 70. You see a clue of this actually in the text. Uh, whenever Jesus speaks of AD 70, he uses this phrase, these things, or, or all these things, in verse 5, 29 and 30. He uses those terms that, that the disciples asked him about the temple. But whenever he speaks of the things beyond AD 70, he uses the phrase, in those days, which in the prophets had the connotation of eschatology over the last days. And so, in other words, Jesus here is, is dealing with a prophecy, and not merely is this prophecy fulfilled in Antiochus, but in Titus. And not merely in Titus, but in another individual. An individual far greater in abomination that causes desolation. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us who this man is, but I think Paul does in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In language quite similar to Mark 13, Paul there describes the man of lawlessness who exalts himself in the temple, in the church, and not only does he perform signs and wonders, he claims to be God. He receives worship. He commits an abomination. He brings the true worship of God to an end and leaves people, leads people away from God. See, the abomination of desolation that comes to the temple in AD 70 is actually just a picture. It's a, it's a type, it's a prefiguring of a greater abomination, a man of lawlessness, that comes to the church at the end of the age just before Jesus returns. 
Now there's a lot packed in there, and you might have to go rewatch all of that. But just like before, Jesus is giving us a description of the end of the age that doesn't paint a pretty picture. Not only will there be persecution, false teachers, wars, natural disasters, but the church will be desecrated. Now, as before, Jesus is intentional here. He reveals all of this to forewarn us and forearm us. That's the point of verse 30. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But may I suggest to you, Jesus tells us all of this not merely to forewarn us and forearm us. No, he reveals all of this so that we would set our hope and our eyes on him. That our hope would be on him, that we will wait for him. Just look at verse 24. After he, he describes this abomination, this disaster, look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall, will fall from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. See, all of those are cataclysmic images meant to, to, to describe the world-changing, world-ending power of Christ. And that's the idea of verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, that language is taken from Daniel 7, which describes the victorious Messiah as he receives his unshakable, everlasting kingdom. And that kingdom is our hope. Now, now what's the larger point that Jesus is getting at? Well, I think he's saying this, don't merely watch out for yourself. Don't, don't merely watch that you aren't deceived and distressed and distracted. No, no. On top of that, look to me. Hope in me. Wait for me. See, at the end of this unstable fallen age, at the end when this abomination makes desolation, Jesus is saying, I'm coming for my people. I will gather my elect to myself, and they will be with me. He's telling us, wait for him, even as we undergo this trial, this tribulation. And therefore, if you are his, if you face all this tribulation, wait for him. We might not like it. But the Christian life, in many ways, is a call to wait. Uh, Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to the song that the saints will sing in heaven. Isaiah 25, 9, and it will be said on that day, what's that day? The day where God brings death to an end. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us therefore be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
And so, dear Christian, as you persevere through this life, as you endure the instability, not just of our government and loaching, but endure the instability of this age, wait for the Lord. That's what we read earlier, Psalm 27. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Why? Because as Proverbs 20 verse 22 tells us, wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. Wait with endurance through this trial and you will be saved. That's the point of verse 13. Now what does it mean to to wait for the Lord? Well, it means to look with faith. It means to have faith that is assured of the hope that is ahead of us. But, but often our faith is weak, isn't it? Often it, it wanes and wanders as we face this world. And if you want something to, to build up your faith, look at verse 30 to 31. After this lesson of this fig tree, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. What are all these things? It's not a reference to his second coming in the age of the disciple. No, it's a reference to the destruction of the temple. And what happened in AD 70? Well, his words proved true. And dear believer, if his words proved true then, his words will prove true now. And so build your faith on his word. Trust in him. Put your faith on him. Wait for him. So the first word, watch. The second word, wait. The third word is work. Work. In verse 32 to 37, uh, Jesus uses, refuses again to answer this when question. Uh, in fact, he can't because of his incarnation. He, he temporarily limits his knowledge to the degree that only the Father knows when the end will come. But that's not really the problem because, as I said earlier, he's more concerned for how we live now. He's already answered that question a little bit. We must watch. We must wait. But in our watching and in our waiting, he would have us know that we must also be working. That's the point of the parable in verse 34. Jesus tells a story of a master who leaves, but he sets his servants in charge of his home. And the expectation is that each servant must do their work. Why? So that if their master returns, they would not dishonor him by being asleep, but instead honor him by being faithful. And the implication for us is this. When Jesus returns, he would have us be found faithful. Faithful stewards, busy with the work that he's given to us. Remember Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so the return of Jesus actually motivates us to work for him in whatever you do, whether you're an elder or a pastor or a deacon or a teacher, in whatever ministry involves, whatever good work you pursue, do so with your eyes on the returning king. 
A story is told of an old American general in the 1700s, and on on a particular or exceptionally dark day, uh, they were having a meeting, and people were afraid that judgment day had come. And so people were thinking, oh, judgment day is here. We need to end the meeting and go and make things right with God. And the general responded and said, well, either it's judgment day or it's not. If it isn't judgment day, then we can just carry on. But if it is judgment day, wouldn't you want God to find you busy working? That's the idea here. Our Savior would want us to be faithful in the work he's called us to. Now, the story is often told of Calvin when he was getting older in his years, older on his life. Many of his colleagues wanted him to work less for the sake of his health, and he responded with a question. What? Would you have, me, my, would you have my master find me idle? I think that's a helpful question. It's a helpful question to turn on ourselves. Would we want Jesus to find us idle? Tell me, do you want Jesus, do you want your Savior, your your Lord, to find you spiritually asleep, stagnant in this world? Or or would you not rather want Him to find you awake, serving Him faithfully, watching, waiting, working for His glory? Would you rather not have Him tell you, well done, good and faithful servant, not just for the fact that you've come to church while the springboks are playing, but because you work for Him in your life, in every aspect? Would you not want Him to look with pleasure upon you? Uh, Someone has said that uh, the process of spiritual sleep can be summed up in three words. Inactivity, indifference, and insensibility. My dear beloved of God, to avoid the insensibility of spiritual sleep, give yourself to the work of the Lord. Give yourself to to watch and wait and work for your God so that you do not become indifferent and fall into this insensible sleep where you're blind, deaf, and dumb to the things of God. What should motivate this work? Or what better motive is there than Jesus' work of salvation? I quoted Titus 2 earlier. Let me quote the next verse. Paul says there, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who was zealous for good works. See, we don't work to save ourselves. No, we work because Christ has saved us. We work because he has worked salvation for us. He's redeemed us from sin and death. He's made us his own. And one day, One day he's coming back and he's going to gather his own. And so, watch, wait, work for him. Our great care, as Matthew Henry would say, must be that whenever our Lord comes, he not find us sleeping, secure in ourselves, off our God, indulging ourselves in ease and sloth, mindless of our work and duty, and thoughtless of our Lord's coming. 
No, no, our great duty, our great care, beloved, should be to stay awake because our King is coming. And so we stay awake with great, great expectation for His return. Uh, may we be a people who are not prone to spiritual drowsiness, but who are awake serving the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for difficult passages like this with things that perhaps uh, are, are, are a struggle to fully understand and apply. Thank you on the other hand that it's actually quite clear that your desire for us is to be a people who, who are not given to the slumber of this world, but a people who are awake, a people who are eager, a people who are looking with great expectation for your return. And so would you not accomplish this in our lives to your spirit? If there are any here that are dead in their sin or those who are here dead in a spiritual slumber, would you not wake them up? Would you not rouse them? Would you not impress again upon our heart the return of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would watch and wait and work for him to the honor and glory and praise of your name. Now do this in our midst, do this in me, so that you would receive all the glory that is due your name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.